Looks like our numbers are down. I understand that there's a lot of sickness. Uh, I'm glad you are here. I pray that you remain healthy. Uh, my name is John Ravel. I'm a full-time chaplain for police and first responders uh, in the state, and I have the, uh, the joy, the privilege, the honor of sharing God's word with you from time to time. Uh, when Peter gets desperate and can't find anybody else, he'll <laughs> give me a call. I say, sure. Uh, I feel sorry for him. Uh, but it's good to be with you. Um, before we jump into uh, this passage, which is one of my all-time favorite passages and my all-time favorite presentations, uh, just a heads up on a couple of things. Um, this is not a focus on one passage. The, the pastor Peter has said several, a uh, couple of times that sometimes when we uh, look into God's Word, we, uh, like Google Maps, we will zoom into one address and we will look at that piece of property uh, closely, but sometimes we zoom out and we look at the bigger picture. And so what we're doing this morning is going to be that huge, uh, large oversight. Uh, we're going to start with the Matthew passage, but we're going from Genesis 1 to Revelation 21. And so this is just to give you a, a heads up. This is going to be a panoramic view that will give the whole picture of the history of Emmanuel, God, with us. Uh, years ago, there was a popular radio personality, uh, uh, who Paul Harvey, who had a, a regular feature called The Rest of the Story, and he would give background story, and you wouldn't know who he was talking about until he got to the end. He said, now you know the rest of the story. This is the rest of the story for the name and the history of Emmanuel. Uh, buckle your seats. This is going to uh, be a, quite a journey. Uh, I will tell you that uh, Chris Rowley uh, took uh, one-third of this sermon last week, and he did a wonderful job, and I'm glad that he did because I don't feel as much of a time pressure. Uh, but the second point is that the reality is, for some of us in this room, we may think and sing the lyrics of Joy to the World, or all as well, but we're not experiencing the truth of it. Uh, Christmas is a glorious time, but for many, it is a difficult, painful time for various reasons. Uh, if you feel hypocritic, hypocritical singing some of these carols, I would suggest to you that the story the, the truth, the heritage of Emmanuel is for you. All of the events that took place around Christmas did not happen with a, a nice setting. Cree, uh, trees, uh, sentiment, uh, and don't get me wrong, I'm all about sentimentality. A good Hallmark card commercial will get me crying. I mean, it's just, I, I love the feeling, but the first Christmas, the Jesus' birth did not have a lot of good feelings associated with it. There was a lot of hard stuff going on. And so if this is a hard time for you, I pray that the Lord will touch your heart with this. So before we get into it, let's pray. Father, we thank you for the reality of which we have sung, the reality of which, of which we celebrate uh, these days. And Father, it is beyond our comprehension that you would love us enough to come in the flesh, in the person of Jesus Christ. And we thank you that you would do that. And Father, right now, as we look at the bigger picture of Emmanuel God with us, we invite your presence. We welcome you here. We desire you to lead us into the truth of your word and then touch our hearts and transform us by it impact not just our thinking, but our attitude, our approach, and our living. Not just for the Christmas season, but for all of our lives. Father, accomplish your purposes despite the speaker and his faults. You know his sins, they are many, but because of your love and your grace and your mercy, you have taken care of that. And so let your message come through clear and strong and in a powerful way. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. It was a dark 
dark time. It was a dark time for Joseph. He was a young man. He was a carpenter. All of the tradition indicates that uh, he may have been the only carpenter in Nazareth. And he was establishing his business and his trade. He had a reputation uh, that he needed to keep up. And he gets word that the prearranged marriage that he uh, had set up with uh, Mary was in jeopardy because his fiance is pregnant. And in today's society, that might not uh, make a big difference, but in the first century Jewish culture, that was catastrophic. Because for a woman to be pregnant outside of marriage meant that either she was promiscuous, which meant that she was unclean and she was not worthy to be a wife and to raise children, or she had been raped by uh, a Roman soldier, which meant she was unclean and unsuitable for raising a family. And Joseph, being a good man, did not want to hurt her, but at the same time, being a devout Jew, he could not afford for his reputation, for his faith, reputation for his business, to be tainted by uh, marrying a woman in this kind, a young maiden in this kind of situation. And so he was facing a very, very dark situation. It was a dark time for Joseph, but it was a dark, dark time for the Jewish people. For 400 years, they had not received a message from God. And in the course of that time, they had experienced invasion. The Greek armies and kings had reigned over the land and tried to force their pagan idolatry upon them. And then the Romans came in and tried to do the same. And in fact, they were pressured to worship the, the Caesar as a god. And the Roman soldiers were ruthless and brutal. And the people of Judah, the Jewish people, were languishing and crying out for God in the darkness. The weight of their darkness was overwhelming and devastating. It was a dark, dark time. And into that darkness, light pierced through. And this passage gives us an ins uh, insight into it. So let's look at it together. Uh, you're familiar with it. Uh, it's the Matthew passage. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together. She was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And in the next passage, all of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. We are used to thinking of the term or the name Emmanuel in the context of Christmas carols. Uh, Michael W. Smith, uh, uh, Emmanuel, uh, or the Christmas carols that we've just sung. But when this was spoken into the Jewish people, and there are commentators, one of my favorite New Testament commentators believes that this was part of the angel's announcement. In the Greek language, you didn't have quotation marks, and so some translators think that Matthew added this later, but some scholars think that this was part of the angel's declaration to Joseph, and I agree with them in that. But regardless, the whole point of Matthew's message was in this context, the hope for the despair, the light for the darkness for Joseph and for the people of Israel, the Jewish people, was that the virgin would conceive and give birth to a son, and his name would be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. And what I'd like for us to consider first this morning is the reality of Emmanuel is God with us in our deepest 
darkest crises. Joseph was facing a crisis, a personal crisis. The nation of, of Judah, the people of, of Judah, were facing a huge crisis. And in the midst of that crisis, the angel says, God with us. Emmanuel, the baby will be called Emmanuel, God with us. Now, we can't appreciate the reality of that or the, the impact of that unless we understand the historical context. What is quoted there in Matthew 1 come, comes from Isaiah, and the passage, you may have heard it before, and we'll uh, let's put it up there, guys. This goes back to a time of uh, a confrontation or an explanation between the prophet Isaiah and King Ahaz. And uh, here's the passage, and we'll come back. We'll look at some of the, the historical uh, context. Uh, Isaiah says to King Ahaz, Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. But Ahaz says... I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you may weary God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin will, shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. Many of us have heard that, but that doesn't make a lot of difference unless we understand what's going on in the context. What had happened is that a new king, go ahead and put the name up here, a new king had risen to power in the north, in the, the nation of Assyria. His name was Tiglath-Pileser. Now, you want to talk about a name that is fun to say. This has it all over Thyatira. I'm here to tell you. <laughs> It is an amazing word, Tiglath-Pileser. It just kind of falls off. Say it with me together, Tiglath-Pileser. Now, doesn't that just give you the Christmas spirit? <laughs> it, it just warms my soul. Tiglath-Pileser was the new sheriff on the block. Go ahead and hit the, the map. In the nation of, right here is the nation of Judah, the southern tribe. And just above is Samaria, the ten tribes, the northern uh, tribe of Israel, and just off to their east was the Ammonites or the Assyrians. But up in Assyria, Tiglath-Pileser had come to power, and he started to flex his military might. He, started, he built his armies up. He instituted some very innovative uh, military ideas and strategies and devices, and he started to expand, and he became the power of the time. Uh, historians say that he eventually went down and conquered Babylon, and that was the first time there was one king reigning over such a huge area because even the Egyptians had not had that large of a reign. But he was starting to make plans to make his way to come south. And so the king of Assyria, I'm sorry, Assyria, uh, the Ammonites, and the king of Samaria, they got together and said, listen, if we're going to resist this king, we've got to form an alliance. And if we join our forces, we may be able to repel. But the only way we can do that is if we get Ahaz down here to our south in Judah to join our forces. So they come to him and they say, Ahaz, this is what we're going to do. And you are either for us or you are against us. If you don't join the alliance, we're going to invade you, and we're going to take over the land, and by implication, you're going to die. And so Ahaz has this incredible obstacle in front of him. The obstacle is either he aligns with these two to try and resist the Assyrians, but he knows Tiglath-Pileser, oh, that's fun, he knows that he is a mighty force to be dealt with, and he's not confident they can resist. So his other option is to go ahead and make an alliance with Tiglath-Pileser directly and circumvent the two kings to the north and have protection from Assyria. So that's what's going on in his mind. To join forces with the two kings to the north 
probably meant that they would be ultimately destroyed by the Assyrians. But to align with the Assyrians meant to embrace their pagan idolatry because the Assyrians practiced the pagan ritual of offering their firstborn son to the pagan gods, to Molech. And so Ahaz has the decision to choose between principle, remaining faithful to God, or pragmatism, doing what's going to be, quote-unquote, for the greater good, or so they thought. And he is up against it. And God sends Isaiah to Ahaz to say, don't worry about it. Before you know it, these two kings to the north are going to be wiped out. You have nothing to worry about. And Ahaz had a choice. Am I going to trust God with this crisis? Or am I going to trust what I can see? The tragedy is he trusted his sight rather than his God. And he formed the, he formed the alliance with the Assyrians. He went up. He got sketches of their pagan altar, brought it down to Jerusalem, set up that altar in the temple, and turned his back on God. But the first time that prophecy is given, a child shall be born, uh, in the Hebrew, it was to a young maiden. In the Greek, it was to a virgin. And he will be called Emmanuel. So the promise was, God is with you. You don't have to worry about it. The truth, the power of that reality, Emmanuel, God with us, is that God is there with us in our deepest, darkest crises. That wasn't the first time. Now, in your bulletin, you have some passages, and there's a lot here. I encourage you to take these passages and review them over the next week. But there are multiple examples throughout the Old Testament where God said, I will be with you. I've chosen four because these are some that we're familiar with. Moses in Exodus 3, Moses has been banished to the backside of nowhere. He's living in exile for 40 years. He's minding his own business, comes upon a burning bush, finds out that it's God, he takes off his shoes and bows before him, and God says, I want you to go and deliver my people. I've heard their cries, and I want you to go and deliver my people from Pharaoh. And Moses understands that Pharaoh is the greatest military force in all the world. And he's one humble shepherd. And he has no standing with the Jewish people, and there's no way they could mount up an insurrection that would result in conquering the Egyptian army and getting out and starting a new nation. And he says, not me. I can't do it. And God says to him, I will be with you. And in fact, the Hebrew root there of I will be with you is the same as the Hebrew root root for Yahweh, in reality he's saying, I am, Yahweh, I am, I, the I am that I am will be with you. That insurmountable obstacle that you can't see the top of that mountain is no obstacle for me because I am with you. Joshua, 40 years later, has this incredible assignment to pick up where Moses left off to lead these several million Israelites across the Jordan River into the new land to take on armies that are battle-trained. And these young soldiers have not seen that much battle. And he's, by all indications, he's terrified. And in, in uh, Joshua chapter 1, in these verses, three times, God says, be strong and courageous. But before he says that, he says, as I was with Moses, I will be with you. Then he says, uh, be strong and courageous three times. But the third time, he says, be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged because the Lord is with you. This incredible obstacle, this, this daunting 
scene in front of him was nothing to fear because God promised to be with him. One of my favorite characters in all the Bible is Gideon. 200 years after, or a couple hundred years, uh, they're faced with an incredible dis- uh, situation of despair. For seven years, Midianite uh, Bedouin bands had r- come in and raided the land. They came in on camels. Uh, they destroyed the, the crops and took them back to their tents. They destroyed a lot of the livestock. And after seven years, the land is totally ravaged. And Gideon is threshing wheat. He's trying to eke out uh, some food and a living for his family. And instead of being out on the threshing floor, he's inside of a wine press. This, the walls are a couple of uh, feet high. And he's hiding in there from the Midianites, threshing wheat. And he looks up, and there's a guy sitting there. And he says, this person sitting there says, Greetings, mighty warrior. The Lord is with you. And Gideon looks around like, Who are you talking to? And he says, wait a second, if the Lord is with us, why is all of this happening? And he says, I want you to lead the army that's going to defeat these 120,000 Midianites. Gideon said, not me. We are the least tribe in all of Israel, and I am the least of my tribe You picked on the wrong guy. You need to look somewhere else. And the Lord said, you don't have to worry about it. I will be with you. And then a few hundred years later, Jehoshaphat. He's in an incredible crisis situation. The Ammonites, the Midianites, the Munites, probably a few parasites and termites have all come together, and they're threatening to invade Jerusalem. And Jehoshaphat comes before the Lord and said, Lord, you promised this and this and this, and you have done this, this, and this, and we're facing these guys. We don't know what to do. God, help us. And through the prophet, he says, you don't have to fight. I'm going to take care of them, and you don't have to worry about anything Because the Lord is with you. Throughout the history of Israel, for the hundreds of years prior to Joseph, time after time, God's people found themselves in desperate situations, facing a mountain of an obstacle that they could not see the top, or a valley of despair that they could not see the bottom. And throughout every one of them, there was this assurance, this promise that God was with them. There are folks in this room who are facing that kind of mountainous obstacle or valley of despair. And the reality, the truth this morning is that God, Emmanuel, is with you. You have no reason to fear. You have no reason to despair because God is with you. Christmas is incredibly difficult for many people. This year, I have led the funeral services for four different individuals just in the last eight months. And family members in each of those situations face devastation, cataclysmic, catastrophic despair. And in the midst of that darkness and that despair is the promise, you've not been abandoned. You are not alone. God is with you. There are centuries, there are millennia of examples of God's faithfulness to his people and being with his people to meet their deepest, darkest crises. 
But not only is God with us in our deepest, darkest crisis, God is with us to meet our deepest need. In that passage, she says, uh, you will name him Jesus because he will save their people from their sins. And again, Chris Rowley handled this uh, beautifully last week, and if you have not watched the video, I encourage you to go back and watch it. I'm going to just touch on it for a couple of minutes. But our deepest need is salvation from our sins. You know, we may think that our deepest need is more income, some kind of financial solution to the dilemma that I face, or some kind of reconciliation with my children or, or my spouse or uh, my parents, and those may be deep needs. But those are not our deepest need. Our deepest need is addressing that which separates us from God. And going all the way back to the book of Genesis, when Adam and Eve sinned, it caused a separation. But God, in his goodness, his love, his mercy, and his faithfulness, took it upon himself to address that problem, that separation, that which caused the great chasm between us, and address our sin. Uh, go ahead and put the tabernacle up there. Last week, Chris addressed uh, Hebrews 10, and, and again, that's one of my favorite passages, so I'm with you, Chris, on that. But uh, in Hebrews 10, he pictures the high priest going into the Holy of Holies each year with the sacrifice. And in the tabernacle that God had Moses uh, build in the wilderness, there was an altar right here where the sacrifice was made, and each year, on Yom Kippur, the high priest would take the blood from that sacrifice, go into what was called the holy place here, and then there was a thick curtain that separated the holy place from the Holy of Holies, and back in the back of the Holy of Holies was the Ark of the Covenant. And go ahead and hit the next slide. The Ark of the Covenant, uh, and if you've seen the Raiders of the Lost Ark, that's kind of a decent representation, but the two angels, their wings reached overhead, and they would put the blood from the sacrifice on what was called the mercy seat. But only the high priest could do that, and that was once a year. And that atoned, Yom Kippur's Day of Atonement, that atoned for the sins of the people for a year. And as Chris pointed out last week in Hebrews 10, it says that Jesus himself, go back to the tabernacle slide, guys. Jesus himself took on the role of being the high priest who took his own blood, which was his sacrifice, and he entered into the real Holy of Holies and presented his sacrificial blood for our atonement, the atonement of our sins for all time. Not just for 12 months, but for all time. And it says because of that, we have bold access to the throne of grace. You see, that which keeps God from being with us is our own sin and our rebellion against him. And that caused the division which kept God from being with us. But God in his mercy and his grace and his love provided the sacrifice necessary to pay for my rebellion and yours through Jesus Christ. So that that barrier that stood between us and God was removed. The veil was torn. And it opened the door for us to have direct communion with our Heavenly Father. Because of Emmanuel. Emmanuel wasn't just a warm, fuzzy phrase associated with a baby born in a, a manger with lights glowing down and harps playing and all of that. Emmanuel is the reality of God coming in the flesh, in the person of Jesus Christ. In Philippians, it says, uh, had this mind in youth who was uh, also in Christ, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be grasped or clung to, but emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant, being found in human likeness. And being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Because of Emmanuel in Matthew 1, 
we have the sacrifice, the perfect sacrifice for us so that that wall of sin that separated us from God was taken away. And if you have not experienced that precious fellowship with the Father that He has made possible through the sacrifice of His own dear Son, I urge you today, consider the reality of God's love and what He has done to make it possible for you to experience His presence, His presence, His being with you, with us. The birth of Jesus wasn't just so we could have Christmas trees and lights and candles and Christmas carols. It's so that the reality of God with us could be experienced in a real way. So, Emmanuel, God with us to meet our deepest, darkest crises. God with us to address, to take care of our deepest need, which is salvation from our sin. But the third, and this is a once fun, God with us to accomplish his eternal plan. It has always been God's plan to be with his people. In Genesis 1, when it says, uh, after the creation, it says, God said, let us make man in our own image. And many scholars, Bible scholars, suggest that the passage there is picturing the triune Godhead, the Trinity, the triune Godhead. And the Trinity, the triune Godhead, exists eternally in ongoing fellowship. And part of being created in the image of God is being created in that likeness of being in fellowship with each other, but God's design for us was to be in fellowship with him. We see that in chapter 3, verse 8 of Genesis, where it says God, uh, Adam and Eve, after they had disobeyed him, like idiots, they listened to the serpent, and they disobeyed God, and it says they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees, the suggestion is that that was not an unusual thing for God to walk in the midst of the garden and for them to be with him in the garden in fellowship, but they disobeyed him. And in this instance, that picture of God's intent to be with his people was disrupted by their sin. But his original intent was that he was going to be with them. That was part of the original design. God's eternal design and purpose was to be with his people. Adam and Eve messed that up. For them, for you and for me. Well, we see God starting to address this in the book of Exodus. Uh, God has done all the plagues. Uh, uh, Passover has happened. The people are getting ready to be delivered. And so God with us uh, to accomplish his plan in Exodus 13, 21 through 22 we see for the very first time the introduction of this manifestation of God. It says, The Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they may travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and pillar of fire by night did not depart from the people. This is the first time in the Bible where we see a physical, tangible, visible manifestation of God coming and being with his people. And we're told uh, later on that as they were departing and the Egyptian army started to chase them, God's presence, this manifestation through the pillar of cloud and fire, came and he put himself directly between the Egyptian army and the Israelites and remained there until the, the Red Sea was parted the nation walked through, and as soon as the nation got through, the pillar of cloud and fire, God's manifestation, lifted up. The Egyptians raced after them. The waters came crashing down. They all died. But that was the reality of God being with his people in a very real, tangible way. And that pillar of cloud and fire led them into the wilderness to Mount Sinai. And God's manifestation settled on Mount Sinai. And all the people could see it. They could see that God was with them. 
And Moses went up and he got all the instructions. And then uh, in Exodus 25, verse 8, God gives these instructions. Let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. The word for dwell is where we get the name, the word for tabernacle. Uh, I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar. Aaron also is uh, consecrated, serving me as priest. And I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. Do you get the sense that God has a thing about dwelling with his people? And again, the, the name tabernacle, and go ahead and get the, the next uh, slide. We saw this before. Tabernacle was the actual place where God dwelt with his people. The tabernacle is a word for tent, and tent, the verbal form of that as well. And so this is where God dwelt. And the idea is, we're going to see in the passage, is when he came, he came and he rested over the Ark of the Covenant. Go ahead to the, to the next two slides. Uh, skip the next one. Uh, get to Exodus 40. And so Moses erected the court around the tabernacle of the altar and set up the screen to get to the court. So Moses finished the work. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. In the next verse, Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from above the, over the tabernacle and the people of Israel uh, would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they would not set out until the uh, day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day and fire was in, in it by night in the sight of the house of Israel throughout all their journeys." the people of Israel could look at this pillar of cloud and fire and they could see God was with us. God is with us. It's reinforced in Le Leviticus 26, 11, and 12. I will make my dwelling among you. Again, my tabernacle, I am dwelling with you. And my soul shall not abhor you and I will walk among you and I will be your God and you will be my people. God took it upon himself, and this was part of his plan, to be with his people in a tangible way. Years later, when Solomon built the temple, the, the concrete or uh, permanent structure, go ahead and get to uh, 1 Kings 6, uh, 11 through 13. Now the word of the Lord came to Solomon concerning this house that you are building. If you will walk in my statutes and obey my rules and keep all my commandments and walk in them, then I will establish my word with you, which I spoke to David, your father, and I will dwell among the people of Israel and will not forsake my people. God's intent, God's plan, his purpose was to be with his people. 2 Chronicles 7, 1 through 3, Solomon completes the temple. As soon as Solomon finished the, his prayer, fire, this is the glory of God, uh, came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. The same way as what happened in the, the tabernacle. The priest could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled the Lord's house. When all the people of the Israel saw the fire come down and the glory of the Lord in the temple, they bowed down with their faces to the ground on the pavement and worshiped and gave thanks to the Lord, saying, For he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. God's eternal plan was to be with his people. And with the nation of Israel, he demonstrated that by his presence in his, his glory manifested in the pillar of cloud and pillar of fire. And God's presence rested over that temple for centuries, even when his people sinned. And for centuries, their sin would go up and down and up and down, and God was patient with them. Until Ezekiel saw his vision in Ezekiel 9, 10, and 11. And in that vision, God basically said, Okay, I've had enough. I'm going to depart from you. 
and Ezekiel saw the vision of the glory of God, the pillar of fire, uh, uh, smoke and fire, ascend above between the two cherubim on that, go over to the chariot that was waiting by the doorway, the threshold, pause there, go to the east gate of the temple, pause there, then go to Mount Zion and pause there and then depart. And for the very first time since the Exodus, God was not with his people. And that's why it was so, so dark. But in Zechariah 2, there is a glimmer of hope Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for behold, I come and I will dwell in your midst, declares the Lord. And many nations shall join themselves to the Lord in that day, and they shall be my people. So the prophecy is of a future time where it's not just going to be Israel. He's going to open the door to other nations, and I will what? Dwell in your midst, and you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you, and the Lord will inherit Judah as his portion in the Holy Land, and will again choose Jerusalem. Be silent, all flesh, before the Lord, for he has roused himself from his holy dwelling. So God has departed. He's not with his people. He's not dwelling with his people, but he gives a glimmer of hope. And in Matthew 1, 8 through 18 through 23, we see the promise of that happening. But John 1, many of you have memorized this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things were made by Him, and without Him not anything was made that was made. But 14, and this is the glorious spot in the salvation history of God with us. 14 says, and the Word, Jesus Christ, became flesh, and what? Dwelt. It is the Greek word that is used for the tabernacle dwelling, John's intent was to show that Jesus himself is fulfilling that role of dwelling he, and dwelt with us, and we beheld his what? Glory as the only begotten of the Father. John points out that Jesus himself now is that pillar of cloud and fire that has come down from heaven and is physically, tangibly dwelling with us. God still had a plan a perfect plan to be with his people, to accomplish that purpose of salvation from our sin, to be with us in our deepest, darkest need. God took it upon himself to come down physically in human form in Jesus Christ to be the glory of God dwelling with us. And in Matthew 28, just before he sins, he says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given unto me, and you shall make disciples of all nations. And here's that expanding the scope. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you. Jesus' promise to fulfill this eternal plan, I will be with you. But something happened. He ascended. And he wasn't with us. But that brings us to Acts chapter 2, where we're told that as they were praying, the Holy Spirit came down and indwelt the believers. And we are told throughout the rest of the New Testament that the Holy Spirit himself indwells those who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ. So you and I have the reality of Emmanuel, God with us, dwelling with us in the person of the Holy Spirit. 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year, or 366 if you have a leap here. Every minute of every hour of every day, the fulfillment of Emmanuel is available to us. God with us in the person of the Holy Spirit. But wait, there's more. Because in Ephesians 2, 
It says, then you are no longer strangers and aliens. You are now fellow citizens with the saints uh, and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostle prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone and in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a what? Dwelling place for God by the Spirit. The body of Christ is now the holy temple of God where the glory of God descends upon and fills the temple. The reality of God's promise of Emmanuel is being fleshed out today in the body of Christ, where He dwells with us. Emmanuel was not just a name of a Christmas carol or a superstar worship leader. Emmanuel was the promise of God with us that was part of his eternal plan. God is a God of love, and love requires a direct object. And he chose to love us and to be with us, to dwell with us. But wait, there's more. Revelation 21. And I'm going to steal some of Peter's thunder when he gets back. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death will be no more. Neither shall there be mourning or crying nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And if the Lord were to reduce himself to some of our petty things, at that point he would drop the mic. Because that is it. God has had this intention from the very beginning of Genesis 1. In Revelation 21, we see the ultimate fulfillment of this, where we are able to be with him apart from any of the physical limitations, the sin, the, uh, the weakness. None of that matters. That time is coming where we will be with him in his presence. And in the next chapter, and I don't have it up there, but in 22, it even says that his servants will see his face. We will be in that kind of proximity. So this actually goes to Revelation 22. God's design, his eternal plan, has to be, to be with his people. And so that's the rest of the story with Emmanuel. It's not merely an opportunity to come up with fancy lyrics to a Christmas carol. It's more than a Christmas morning joy. It is the hope for all eternity. I'm going to ask the praise team to come up and start preparing to close. But as I do this morning, you may be entering into the Christmas season without any of the emotional baggage that I've described. If so, great. Enjoy. Celebrate. Experience all of the 
the warm sentimentality, that's fine. But do it in the context of the reality that this was what God has designed and accomplished through the death of Jesus Christ. The manger would be meaningless without the cross. The significance of the manger is found only in the cross. And keep this concept of Emmanuel in perspective, that this was to take care of our deepest need, forgiveness for our sins, salvation from our sins. But this morning, if you are overwhelmed by situations related to family issues or financial issues or employment issues or, or some kind of dilemma or some kind of obstacle, again, that mountain of obstacle may be so high you cannot see the top of the mountain. You have no way of knowing how you're going to get there. Or you may be standing on the precipice of a valley of despair that is so deep and dark you cannot possibly see how you can get through it. The reality, the hope of Emmanuel is for you. And I'll leave you with the verse that we started with a call to worship. Philippians 4 verse 9 says, do these things that we've been, been talking about. Embrace them, do them, remember them, do them. And the God of peace will be with you. Father, thank you for who you are and what you have done. And it is all about you. Thank you for caring for us enough to fulfill your intention, your purposes of being with us. Use the reality of Emmanuel to touch our hearts, our minds, our souls, so that we line ourselves up more with you. I pray in the precious name of your dear son, Jesus Christ.